The Secret Church podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church for study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC4. And this is Secret Church for episode 9. All right, the mysteries of God. Here we go. Let's get it started. Uh, Yeah, there's a lot of pages to cover. Uh, And this is, again, that little caveat that I shared at the beginning. I mean, I'm going to make some statements through here that's going to like, man, you can unpack that for weeks, but we're just going to fly on to the next statement. So uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29 talks about the secret things of God. Tozer says, left to ourselves, we tend, and we've got to be careful here, we tend immediately to reduce God to manageable terms. We want to get him where we can use him, or at least know where he is when we need him. We want a God we can in some measure control. We need the feeling of security that comes from knowing what God is like. And what he is like is, of course, a composed, at least in our minds is what he's saying here, of all the religious pictures we have seen, of all the best people we have known or heard about, all the sublime ideas we've entertained. If all this sounds strange, to modern ears, it is only because we have for a full half century taken God for granted. The glory of God has not been revealed to this generation of men. J. Rodman Williams said, because all Christian doctrines relate to God, who is ultimately beyond our comprehension, there will inevitably be some element of mystery or transcendence that cannot be reduced to human understanding. Nonetheless, within these limits, the theological effort must be carried on. This is my favorite here from John Calvin. Man with all his shrewdness is as stupid about understanding by himself the mysteries of God as a donkey in brackets. I I didn't put (laughs) what the quote actually says uh, because I value my job. uh, As a donkey is incapable of understanding musical harmony. And so there you go. Thank you, John Calvin. Um, 1 Corinthians 4, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now, what do you mean when you say mystery? Well, vocabulary here. You got a contradiction is a condition in which at least two things are truly contrary to each other. To say something is A and not A at the same time. It's a contradiction that someone is in this room and someone is not in this room. That David is in this room or David is not in this room. You can't say both of them. They would would be contrary to each other. That's a contradiction. A paradox is a correlation that appears to be a contradiction or maybe even absurd, but when you examine it closely, it proves to be true. I mean, things like we've talked about these, Jumbo Shrimp or uh, Microsoft Works or... uh, (laughs) Second uh, Corinthians 12:10. When, when some of you just got that, it's 11:05. So Second Corinthians 12:10 says, "When I'm weak, then I'm strong." That doesn't. It's a paradox. An antinomy. An antinomy is a combination of two thoughts or principles, each of which is true in its own right, but we can't harmonize. They're both true, but we can't harmonize them together. This is the sovereign will of God, God and evil. We're probably going to go quicker through the Trinity, so we have a little more time on the last two. Um, Anyway, we're going to fly through them all. The Trinity, Tozer said, to meditate on the three persons of the Godhead is to walk in thought through the garden eastward in Eden and to tread on holy ground. Our sincerest effort to grasp the incomprehensible mystery of the Trinity must remain forever futile, and only by deepest reverence can it be saved from actual presumption. We know the Trinity, that word, is never mentioned in the Bible, but the Bible teaches the Trinity from cover to cover. If you were to ask me to explain the Trinity, I would put in front of you these three foundational truths, three truths that explain or put together the Trinity. Again, how they fit together, that's the mystery, but these are the three truths. And keep in mind, when we talk about mysteries, 
some of the best advice my dad gave me was when you don't know what to do, do what you know to do. And there's some things, how do you put this together? But you focus on what you do know. We do know these things. Number one, God is three persons. Three persons. God is three persons. Scripture talks about God with plural pronouns. Genesis 1, let us create man in our image. Let us go down, Genesis 11. Whom shall I send who will go for us, Isaiah 6. You got a plural picture of God three with plural pronouns. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are persons. And this is key. When we think about God the Father, He's a person. When we think about, and we talked about God as person and spirit, how, how we get this picture. We got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Spirit in particular here, sometimes we almost discount the fact that Spirit's a person. We think of the Spirit as some force or some energy or something like that. But the Spirit is a person. You look in John chapter 16, and He is referred to with masculine pronouns, not neuter or neutral pronouns. He's referred to as masculine pronouns. The, that, the word spirit would normally be, not, not be masculine or feminine. But you look in John 16, when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And you look through Scripture and you see the Scripture doing what a person does. The spirit teaches. The spirit testifies. The spirit intercedes. The spirit searches all things of God, which is what we talked about earlier. The spirit searches. The spirit knows. The spirit gives gifts. The spirit speaks searches and speaks. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. The Spirit is grieved. So the Spirit is a person. Plural pronouns, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all persons. At the same time, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct. Now this is really important to see. You look in Matthew chapter 3 at the baptism of Jesus, you see all three persons of the Trinity. You see Jesus being baptized, the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove, and the voice from heaven, the Father saying, this is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Great commission, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Shows a distinction there. Same in Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 1. The Son is distinguished from the Father. The Spirit is distinguished from the Son, and the Father is distinguished from the Spirit. They're distinguished from each other. So, Truth number one, God is three persons. That's foundational. Truth number two, each person is fully God. Scripture teaches this. God the Father is fully God. That's really throughout the history of Christianity, never really been debated. Um, you got Genesis 1 and a couple of verses from Matthew 6 there. God the Father is fully God, not part God. It's not part Father, part Son, part Holy Spirit. God the Father, fully God. God the Son is fully God. I would encourage you, we need to know why we believe that the Son is fully God. If I were to ask you to turn over on the back of your notes there and write out every verse that you know that says the Son is fully God, how many verses would you be able to write? And I ask you that because I think there is a famine when it comes to understanding the deity of Christ, the person of Christ in the church today. We need to know. This is huge. This is very key in our faith as we're going to see. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is, the, is, the, is really the Christ hymn, the great passage on this. For being in very nature God, he is God. There's four truths that are kind of contained even here in this little passage. He is God, being in very nature God, and not consider equality with God, something to grasp, and made himself nothing, taking the very nature. The servant being made in human likeness. God is, he is God, he is man, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He's God, he's man, he's Savior. God exalted him in the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord. He's God. He's man. He's Savior. He's Lord. He's all those things. Philippians 2, 5 to 11. 
Hebrews 1.3, he is the exact representation of the being of God. He is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We already talked about John, how John emphasizes his humanity, how in John 20, 28, Thomas bows at Jesus' feet and says, my Lord and my God. God, the Father is fully God, God the Son is fully God, and God the Spirit is fully God. Acts chapter 5, you've not lied to men but to God. When Ananias, it's a fire lie to the Holy Spirit. It's equating God with the Spirit of God. We've already seen the Spirit is omnipresent. The Spirit is omniscient. God the Spirit is fully God. So that's truth number two. God is three persons, number one. Number two, each person is fully God. Truth number three, there is one God. One God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I am the Lord, there is no other. God makes it very clear. There's no question from cover to cover in Scripture. There is one God. We're not talking about many gods. So you take those three truths. Here's the mystery, putting them together. But the three truths are God is three persons. Each person is fully God. There is one God. Now I want to throw in three additional notes here that we need to keep in mind. The Trinity is not a contradiction. This is why we did that little vocabulary thing in the beginning. When we are talking about God being three persons and there being one God, we need to realize that God's threeness and His oneness are different. God is three in a way that is different from Him being one. You kind of just let that soak in at 11.15 at night, okay? God is three in a way that is different than Him being one. We're not saying God is one and not one. That would be a contradiction. Instead, we're saying God is one and three. That's what, that's what makes us a mystery, not a contradiction. We're not saying that his oneness and threeness are the same. God is not one and one at the same time. He is one in three. The picture that Scripture gives us, second little additional note, the Trinity is eternal. What I mean by that, and you've got the verses there, one, one person of the Trinity did not come into being at some random time. The Father has always been and always will be God. The Son has always been and always will be God. The Spirit has always been and always will be God. Third additional note, the persons of the Trinity have different functions. Now here's what's key. They function in different ways at different times. But that doesn't mean that in their essence they are different. What I mean by that, at times the Son is functionally subordinate to the Father. Not essentially. I put that with exclamation point. When we see Jesus obeying the Father in the Gospels, he is functionally subordinate to the Father, but that doesn't mean he is less than God at that moment. Same thing when Jesus, at times the Son is functionally, not essentially, dependent on the Spirit. Jesus is led by the Spirit, Luke chapter 4, verse 1. And so the picture is he's functionally dependent on the Spirit, but that doesn't mean he's less than God at that point. You think about creation. They're functioning in different ways. God the Father is speaking. God the Son is implementing. Colossians 1 tells us God the Spirit is hovering above the waters. Consider salvation. God the Father plans. God the Son obeys. The Father didn't come and die on the cross. The Spirit didn't die on the cross. The Son died on the cross. God the Son obeys. God the Spirit applies salvation to our lives. Here's the difference. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal in their attributes, equal in their essence. There's not one person of the Trinity that is inferior in essence. Second, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are different in their relationships. They relate to each other differently at times, just like we saw. The Son is subordinate to the Father, the Son dependent on the Spirit, that sort of thing. Now, this is obviously because of the nature of this, this doctrine, this truth in Scripture has been debated throughout uh, 2,000 years of Christian history. And the heresies usually arise from denying one of those foundational truths. Modalism is denial of the first foundational truth, M-O-D-A-L-I-S-M, modalism. 
And basically, modalism says that instead of three distinct persons, God has three distinct modes. And the picture is, I put there in your notes there, God wears three different masks. It's kind of like sometimes God puts his father mask on, sometimes he puts his son mask on, sometimes he puts his spirit mask on. It's not three different persons. He's got three different modes that he operates in. He's got three different masks that he wears. So it's denial of the fact that God is three persons, not persons. He's got different modes or different masks that he wears. The problems with that is it denies the relationships within the Trinity, the way they relate to each other, the way in that thinking one mask would relate to the other mask. It ignores the separation of persons in scriptures like Matthew 3 at the baptism of Jesus. You've got Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit doing different things. How does that, how does that work at the same time if it's, if it's just a matter of modes at different times? And then it undercuts. And this is where it's so key. Some of you are thinking, what does this matter? It matters because this, this thought undercuts the doctrine of the atonement truth that God sent his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus must be fully God and fully man to pay the price for sin, to identify with us as man and to be able to bear the weight of divine sin. If he is not fully man and fully God, then it undercuts the very foundation of our salvation. That's why this is important. That's why you don't want to be a modalist. You didn't even know what that was before you came in here tonight, but don't be one. Second, Arianism is the historical heresy that denies the second foundational truth. And Arianism denied specifically the deity of the Son. This would either deny the deity of the Son or the Holy Spirit, but Arianism claimed that the Son is inferior in essence to the Father. I won't go into the history just for sake of time, but praise God for a man named Athanasius who stood up at a very young age and who, who defended the deity of Christ at great risk to his life for years and, and showed the picture of the deity of Christ and supremacy of Christ, his humanity and his deity. I put contemporary Arianism here. That really is, I, I probably would change the wording if I had to go back and do it over again. But I just want to point out, this is a huge huge truth that Jesus is fully God and fully man because this is a core distinction between Christianity and Islam and Christianity and cults, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons. This is, it's blasphemous to go into the Middle East and say that Jesus is God in the flesh. God would not become a man. He would not debase himself to come like, become like us. And so this is a bedrock truth in Christianity that we need to have our hearts and minds around. Third, denial of the third foundational truth would be polytheism. Polytheism, which is basically the worship of more than one God, the worship of many gods. Polytheism. We don't worship three gods. We worship one God in three persons. Three practical conclusions. How does this, what does this matter? Number one, our God is worthy. And it is appropriate for us to worship the Father. It's appropriate for us to worship the Son. It's appropriate for us to worship the Spirit because they're each fully God. Our God is worthy. Second, our mind is finite. We need to to realize that the Trinity is not humanly constructed. I love what Tertullian, he's an earlier church father, who said. He said, this is definitely not humanly constructed because nobody would be so crazy as to construct this kind of doctrine. He said, this is divinely revealed. This is what Scripture shows us from cover to cover, these truths. It's divinely revealed, not humanly constructed. And it is incomprehensible. It's one of those things that we don't know, understand fully, just where we started tonight. And as a result, any analogy is insufficient. All kinds of analogies people try to throw out. Well, it's kind of like the, an egg. You got the yolk and the white and the shell. And, or it's kind of like water. Sometimes it's liquid. Sometimes it's steam. Sometimes it's ice. Uh, 
It's kind of like tree and trunk and bark. It, that's ridiculous. L- listen, you don't, you don't need to come up with an analogy to try to describe God. He's not water and he's not an egg. That's not the, every single analogy that you can come up with to try to explain the Trinity to yourself or to your children or to anybody else is going to be insufficient in the end. Every single analogy is going to break down. There's even grammatical analogies like, well, let's just say that God are one or they is three. That's ridiculous. Don't even go there. Then we're just, we're just laughed at, okay? The, the picture is, Scripture doesn't give us an analogy to describe the Trinity. We don't need to come up with one. The Trinity is incomprehensible, and any analogy is ultimately going to break down. It's insufficient. People have heard one, like a pretzel. You know, you got three circles, and each one is fully pretzel. I mean, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Just eat your pretzels. Can we know? Can, <laughs> can we know the doctrine of the Trinity exhaustively? No. No, it's where we started tonight. We cannot know the doctrine of the Trinity exhaustively, but we, can we know the doctrine of the Trinity truly? You're still thinking about pretzels. You're hungry. Can we know the doctrine of the Trinity truly? Absolutely. We can't know it exhaustively. Remember, we can't know it fully, but we can know it truly. doesn't mean we can't know it truly, but not fully. Tozer said, love, love, love and faith are at home in the mystery of the Godhead. Let reason kneel in reverence outside. Third implication, our salvation is secure, ladies and gentlemen. We are not saved by a creature. We are saved by the Creator. We're not saved by a mere man. We're saved by a man who is fully man and fully God. The one who saves us completely is completely God. The Trinity, anonymous person said in the past, try to explain it and you'll lose your mind. Try to deny it and you will lose your soul. Okay, now that we got the Trinity figured out, the sovereign will of God. Now we're going to think about God and his sovereignty, and I want you to think about providence here. This is going to get really interesting, okay? A little dicey at points. Uh, What does it mean when we talk about the providence of God? God is continually acting to sustain all things and guide all things according to his plan. God is continually acting. He's presently doing something. He's always doing something. Two things. He's sustaining and guiding. Two facets involved. Number one is preservation. God is sustaining all things. There is nothing that is that he didn't bring into existence. There is nothing that is that he doesn't keep in existence. He is sustaining all things. We talked about it earlier. The only way we have breath right now is because God is sustaining our breath. The only way our heart is beating is because of sustenance from God, preservation. Second, sovereignty. God is guiding all things according to his plan. God has a plan, and he is guiding everything according to it. That's what we mean when we talk about sovereignty. Now, you think about this on three different levels. Contexts that are affected by God's providence. Cosmically, everything in all creation is included in this. This means God, God has a plan for Pluto. Okay? He's sustaining Pluto, and he has a plan for Pluto. So everything cosmically, corporately, we often see the sovereignty of God, especially mentioned in relation to his people, his relationship with his people, oftentimes in the church. In fact, the whole picture of sovereignty is intended to be an encouragement to the church. Third, this is the amazing truth, personally, Ladies and gentlemen, he is sustaining and guiding each of our lives according to his plan. He has a will in each of our lives, a sovereign will. Now, what we need to avoid is four dead ends regarding God's providence. Dead end number one is deism. And this is the idea that uh, God created everything and then kind of took his hands off and leaves everything to happen however it will. It's kind of like he winds up the watch and then lets it go and doesn't interact with it. And this is not the way we... 
not what we believe, but the reality is this is the way a lot of us live. A lot of us live like God is not involved in our lives when he is. It's deism. Pantheism, we've talked about that earlier. Um, remember, God is distinct from his creation. He's guiding, but it doesn't mean he is in the trash can. Fatalism, we've got to be careful not to associate the providence of God, the sovereignty of God with fatalism, this idea that there are blind forces of fate at work that are controlling everything that has happened. And fate has determined all of these things. If you read your horoscope or if you look to the scar stars to find out what your destiny is, you would be a fatalist. And then fourth dead end is process and open theism. These are actually two different theologies, process theology and open theology, but I put them together here because basically they, they do both say that God is either not fully in charge of what's happening in the future, God doesn't know what's happening in the future, that God may be even in process of developing himself. That's not where we're going. So where are we going? Preservation, we'll hit on this shortly and then camp out a little bit on sovereignty. Preservation, God is sustaining all things. He sustains any properties and any things. God preserves water so that it acts like water. God preserves grass so that it acts like grass. It's, it does what it does because God is preserving it. God sustains, second, any predictability in anything. You drop something, it falls. That's not just natural. It's natural because God sustains it that way. Any predictability. When you put gas in your car, it causes it to run because God sustains the properties of gas that would cause that to happen. There's nothing accidental in this whole picture. It's God sustaining all predictability in anything, and it's a good thing. Otherwise, everything in the universe would be haphazard. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources from David Platt at Radical.net.